Cadence, and you're listening to Grotto Punk. Welcome. Today we're going to have a gap fest. Each one of us, me, George Higgins, Ben Marks, Beth Weingarter, Susie Gerhard, and Daniel Pierce, have all selected a book, our favorite book of 2019. And we're all going to give a short intro to the book and then talk about it a little bit. We're also going to, up front here, view books that have been published by writers here at the Writers' Club. So why don't we get started? Maybe Susie, you could tell us some of the books that have been published here in the Writers' Grotto in 2019. Cool. Thanks, George. We're just describing the books out this year from the Writers' Grotto, and there's been so many great ones. So let's get started. I have The White Devil's Daughters, an incredible history of the trafficking of young Asian girls that flourished in San Francisco during the first hundred years of Chinese immigration and the city safe house that became a refuge for them. That book is by Julia Flynn Seiler. Then there's Talking to Robots by David Ewing Duncan. It's a speculative nonfiction hybrid on the possibilities of what comes next in the AI human interface. It's got help from theoretical physicist Brian Greene, futurist Kevin Kelly, and others. Asks the question, what could go right and what could go wrong? A Girl Goes into the Forest by Peg Alford Purcell is an immersive poetic plumbing of the complex desires, contradictions, and sorrows of daughters wives, husbands, artists, siblings, and mothers. All right, and Daniel, what do you have for us? So Filigree's Midnight Ride is a children's novel uh, written by Dorothy Hurst and Pam Berkman. And this book uh, describes Paul Revere's ride as viewed uh, and experienced by a Pomeranian, Filigree, who is there, and it's the, the first in a series of these historical fictions for children. The next is The Wake Diaries by Mary Ladd, which, uh, as she puts it, is the funny, odd, sad book I wish had existed when I was told that I have cancer. Um, the next is A People's History of Heaven by Mathangi Subramanian, which follows the lives of five girls and close friends as they fight to save their community on the brink on the outskirts of Bangalore. All right, terrific. Uh, Beth, what do you have? So uh, first on my list is The Atlas of Reds and Blues by Debbie Lasker. I read this book this year and it was one of my favorites, although I won't be talking about it today. Um, it's a beautifully written exploration of what it's like to be a person of color in America. And it's told from the perspective of a woman who has just been shot by police and is dying throughout the course of the narrative. Second up is Girls Who Run the World by Diana Cap. She offers profiles of 31 female CEOs, and the book offers a variety of tips and information for girls and women on how to turn their pass passions into successful businesses. Um, last is Notorious San Francisco by one of our members, Paul Drexler. He's been running the Crooks Tour of San Francisco for many years. It's a walking tour that takes you to some of the places where uh, the criminal underground flourished in our history. And he tells more than 20 stories of serial killers, deadly women, con men, masters of escape, and unsolved mysteries. Um, it sounds really great. All right, Ben. Um, like Water and Other Stories by mm -hmm. Olga Zilberberg investigates how motherhood reshapes the sense of self. The stories are set 
in places and times such as the Cuban Missile Crisis and present-day San Francisco. The Risk of Us by Rachel Howard is a novel about a couple's struggles to adopt a child and then the further struggle to raise a family. The Wild Impossibility by Cheryl A. Osala is a book that Katie Crouch has described as a breathtaking novel about what it means to be a mother. Oh, great. Okay. And uh, finally, uh, I just wanted everyone to know that the Writer's Grotto, we have published uh, four prompt books. So if you're getting, if you're stuck uh, with your writing, uh, these are, are books to, to kind of get you going, prompt books. We have one on writing character, which is introduced by Constance Hale. Another one on writing dialogue, uh, introduced by Shanti. Another one writing action, by, introduced by Bonnie Soy. And finally, uh, one on writing humor, introduced by Chris Cohen. That's the Writer's Grotto, published books in a nutshell for 2019. At this point, we're going to move on to our favorite books of this year. Why don't we start with uh, Susie. Susie, your book is Sigrid Nunez's The Friend. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll have a discussion. All right. So yeah, I'm cheating a little bit because my favorite book of 2019 came out in 2018 and actually won a National Book Award in the fall of 2018, but it came out in paperback this year. And since I like to go the inexpensive route, I tend to buy them when they're in paperback. Anyway, Sigrid Nunez is an author who's probably best known for her Sontag-related memoir, Sempre Susan. And I have to say that A.O. Scott called it a masterpiece of the I Knew Susan mini-genre. So I only offer that because it makes me laugh as another Susan out here. <laughs> With this novel, it's, it's another hybrid. Nunes offers sort of more literary inside baseball while asking a really, I think, like vital question. Can we embrace an imperfect world and the characters in it? So one character is very imperfect in this book, a sexually off-the-rails male professor, now deceased, and she's been given um, an inheritance that she doesn't necessarily want, which is his great dame. So this giant dog takes over her life pretty hilariously as she cares for its emotions as well as its excrement. And um, she's also <coughs> managing the teaching grind. So one scene that I could point out is, you know, she's there on a Manhattan street. She's shoveling the dog's poo while she has to direct all of the traffic around this enterprise. <laughs> and, you know, so... You don't have to search too hard for metaphors. It's sort of like what connects us to writing and to life. You know, is it everything around us? Shite? And do we have to just appreciate that? Um, I'm going to say it's, you know, this book, it was sort of immediately popular because of its fearlessness in a, in, in a world that is sometimes, especially as writers, wants us to play it safe. You know, there's a twist um, that is, is she builds too wonderfully. Um, because you, you sort of miss the locomotion of the book because you're luxuriating in the kind of ennui. And I say ennui because it's written in this kind of elliptical style. So I'm just gonna finish with, you know, the fact that sort of the pages just kind of feel like aphorisms strung together, sort of like perfect for the Twitter age, but they work because they're really funny. And one of them I love is, um, if reading does increase empathy, as we are constantly being told that it does, it appears that writing takes some away. I love The Friend because it's it's fun by the sentence, it's fun by the page, it's fun by the chapter, and it's on a very unfun topic. So that is my 
2018 book of the 2019 year. <laughs> <laughs> Cheating's allowed. <laughs> I think you had me at Great Dane. <laughs> I love those dogs. They're, they're actually very good apartment dogs because they're you know not uh, incredibly uh, restless and, and playful as you might expect, and that does come across in, in this book, which oh, I also loved. So interesting. Yeah, I think I was really, I started reading it, sadly, on the, the month that um, we lost our cat. Aww. And so, you know, just reading out about a person's connection to an animal and just how, you know, those bonds are, I mean, they're actually hard to describe. And she does such a really um, good job of, of describing how how the strings get connected to the heart and how they start tugging, even for the most unlikely of people. And, and I think maybe one reason why this book resonated so strongly is because uh, the author herself is a, a cat person, not a dog owner. Uh, so, uh, yeah. How do you know that? I, I, I listened to an interview with her around the time that the book came out, and I think, um, you know, it's. It, it's sort of of a piece with uh, a lot of the kind of like auto-fictional novels where um, uh, she just kind of convinces the, the reader that the book is uh, only thinly veiled autobiography. Mm -hmm. And so it's very easy to assume that, you know, she, like she, Sigrid Nunez, is in possession of this great Dane. And a lot of the interview questions that she had to field when she was kind of on book tour had to do with like, uh, you know, uh, how much the, you know, contents of the book resembled her actual life. And so I think she got a lot of questions about whether she has a gigantic dog of her own. Yeah. And that's part of the kind of like, I don't want to give that away, but a little bit part of the twist is really just dealing with the literary format um, mm -hmm. that you sort of get toward the, the ending, the penultimate part. Um, so that's really fun. Great. I'm going to ride along. Next we have Daniel Pierce. He's, his book is uh, by Andrea Wong Chu, and it's females. So uh, why don't you give us a thumbnail, Daniel? Yeah, so this, and, and I, should, I should say as a caveat, I don't know that this was my favorite book of 2019, but uh, certainly the, uh, I, I just finished it, and it has really stayed with me. Um, it's an excellent provocation more than anything. I feel like even book doesn't really quite capture it, maybe like novella length essay or, or something. It consists of these really short little chapters, um, each of which has an epigraph from the uh, Valerie Solanus play Up Your Ass. Um, this is the Valerie Solanus who, who shot Andy Warhol, who wrote The Scum Manifesto. So the, the kind of core argument of the book is, to use uh, Andrea Longchu's uh, words, that femaleness is a universal sex defined by self-negation against which all politics, even feminist politics, rebels. Put more simply, everyone is female and everyone hates it. And so this is, you know, I think a, a, a definition of, of female that many readers uh, will contest and kind of reflects the, the spirit of the book, which is contrarian and, you know, not really interested in its uh, would-be detractors. And I think what really grabbed me about the book wasn't so much kind of how uh, persuasive that argument 
is, um, but really just her exciting close readings of different like cultural objects ranging from the Matrix to uh, Fight Club to a lot of Solanus's own writings. Solanus is the kind of figure at the at the core of this book, and there are also kind of elements of of memoir about um, Long Chu's transition. She's trans, and and I I actually had assigned an essay of hers um, uh, this term t- uh, to my students, who most of whom felt provoked by it fittingly um, and not all liked it but it certainly yielded um, productive conversations and and that essay um, called on liking women uh, is seems to have supplied the the foundation for this book which I, I really do um, recommend even for those who might hate it <laughs> just something you want to like chew on with I mean, your molars yeah the, you know it, it gives I think the the strongest part of the book is her reading of um, the manosphere which is like that kind of uh, you know dark corner of the internet uh, in which the kind of creepy uh, men's rights activists gather and that's sort of what prompts the um, discussion of the matrix because you know for um, uh, all of these like you know alt-right you know, men's rights people, the um, red pill moment in The Matrix is like the key metaphor for them. Uh, that's so like. What is red pill? Just oh, in case God. somebody oh. doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so in, in, in the manosphere, it's, uh, it's like the, the moment when you realize that, uh, uh, and this is all very, very heavily scare quoted, uh, when you realize that, you know, uh, feminism is just a conspiracy to, you know, like emasculate these, uh, you know, very sad uh, online involuntarily celibate to use their self-description guys. Uh, and she offers a kind of queer reading of, of the matrix that sort of reclaims this uh, I- idea of the red pill for well, that's so cool. Um, and for for listeners or even people here who don't know, there's this moment in The Matrix where um, the main character, Neo, meets this other character, Morpheus, and Morpheus says, do you want to take the red pill or the blue pill? The, the blue pill, you go back to your life, everything seems as it was, you take the red pill and you find out like what reality really is. And and one thing that's that's re- that's that's sort of fascinating that uh, Long Chu um, explores is you know that that the co-directors of the Matrix, the Wachowski sisters, are themselves trans, and so she kind of reads that moment as an allegory for like discovering one's gender identity. So yeah. I love that. Yeah. Oh great! Well, thank you, Daniel. Okay. Beth, why don't we uh, we hear from you next? You're going to do Emily and Amelia. Uh, Nagoski's Burnout. So tell us a little bit about Burnout. I think there's a nice segue between Daniel's book and mine. A few years ago, Emily Nagoski um, published a book called Come As You Are, uh, dedicated to information about women's sexuality. She is a sex educator and a scientist, and the message of that book is that however you are, it's normal. And there was a small chapter in that book about stress and emotion and how that gets in the way of sexuality particularly for women and all of the women that came up to her after like during the book tour said can you write about 
that because that's what I really need to know about. So she and her twin sister um, in 2019 published this book, Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle, which is all about the really massive amounts of stress that women in particular deal with in our culture um, because they're so uh, raised and expected to cater to the needs of the others, protect the feelings of others. Um, and burnout is especially common in uh, caretaking careers, teaching, nursing, um, social work, all of that type of stuff. So while this can be read by anybody who's dealing with a chronic stress environment, um, it's particularly designed for women and people who are in those sorts of roles where they're taking care of everyone else around them. Um, it sort of pushes back on the idea that you can relieve your stress just by taking a nice bath or going to yoga or whatever. Um, she really talks about the, the biological nature of our stress response, which is designed to get us out of dangerous situations with like a tiger or something. Uh, there's supposed to be like a beginning and middle and end to all of those feelings and they talk about that. But in our modern culture, we don't really get to finish those feelings or we bottle them up or they're not socially appropriate. So um, I'm gonna read a little bit from the book that sort of gets at what they're talking about and the rest of the book is solutions to try to get your, your nervous system to calm down in ways that um, our society doesn't really allow for anymore. So she writes, or rather I should say they write, our stress response is beautifully fitted to the environment where it evolved. The behavior that dealt with a lion was the behavior that completed the stress response cycle, and that makes it easy to assume that it's the elimination of the lion, the cause of the stress, that completed the cycle. But no. Suppose you're running away from the lion when it's struck by lightning. You turn and see the dead lion, but do you suddenly feel peaceful and relaxed? No. You stop, puzzled, heart pounding, eyes darting in search of the threat. Your body still wants to run or fight or hide in a cave and cry. The threat may have been dealt with by an act of God, but you're still left needing to do something to let your body know that you're safe. The stress response cycle needs to complete and just eliminating the stressor isn't enough to do that. So maybe, maybe you run back to your village and breathlessly tell your tribe what happened and you all jump up and down and cheer and thank God for the lightning bolt. Or a modern example, suppose the lion charges, it's coming right for you. Thinking quickly, you grab your rifle and shoot the lion, and you save your own life. Bang, the lion drops dead. Now what? The threat is gone, but again, your body is still in full action mode. Because you haven't done anything, your body recognizes as a cue that you are safe. Your body is stuck in the middle of a stress response. Just telling yourself, you're safe now, calm down, doesn't help. Even seeing the deadline isn't enough. You have to do something that signals to your body that you are safe, or else you'll stay in that state with neurochemicals and hormones degrading but never shifting into relaxation. Your digestive system, immune system, cardiovascular system, etc., never get the signal that they're safe. But wait, there's more. Suppose the stressor is not a lion but some jerk at work. The jerk will never be a threat to our lives, he's just a pain in the ass. He says some jerky thing at a meeting, and you get a similar flood of adrenaline and cortisol and glycogen, oh my. But you have to sit there in that meeting and be nice. 
socially appropriate. It would only escalate the situation if you vaulted across the table and scratched his eyes out, as your physiology is telling you to do. Instead, you have a quiet, socially appropriate, highly functional meeting with his supervisor in which you recruit the supervisor's support in intervening the next time the jerk says another jerky thing. Congratulations. But addressing the cause of the stress doesn't mean you've addressed the stress itself. Your body is soaked in stress juice, just waiting for some cue that you are now safe from the potential threat and can relax into celebration. And it happens day after day after day. So we know from a bunch of recent experts that chronic stress just makes us very sick. It contributes to heart disease and diabetes and chronic pain and everything else that is at the top of our like most pernicious diseases right now. So I feel like this book, this book is super useful for helping people figure out how to get out of those stress responses and calm down a little bit. Have you read the work of Robert Sapolsky? Um, I haven't, but he's quoted in here, and I've watched one of his lectures um, on depression, and it's amazing. Yeah, I love his stuff, and you know, he, he did um, stress research. We need stress, mm-hmm. but chronic stress is killing us. Yes, and his theory of depression is that um, it's brought on partly by um, a genetic predisposition coupled with um, stress that you can't get rid of. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned that... Uh, yoga or, or meditating wouldn't necessarily relieve you of distress. Do they uh, suggest uh, possible ways to deal with stress? Um, yes, there's a number of ways. And I shouldn't bag on yoga because okay. physical exercise is one of the things that they recommend. 30, 30 to 60 minutes a day of fairly intensive exercise. It doesn't have to be running, but uh, running is a very natural Um, stress reliever for human beings because we were designed to run away from predators. Um, But they also talk about things like when human beings do the same thing together, for example, singing in a chorus um, or playing a game together, we get um, a massive rush of happy brain chemicals that help us calm down and feel safe. For people who can't exercise or, you know, for whatever reason, just can't be that active. One of the things they recommend, you know, there's that progressive relaxation where you tense and relax all your muscles. And it's usually just a couple of seconds. They say tense as hard as you can for as long as you can, at least 10 seconds. And do that all throughout your body. And do it as many times as possible and focus on areas that are especially tense. That's one of my favorites, actually. Oh, wow. That's so interesting, that the idea of running, that it seems, like, connected to running from a predator. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Cars are predators, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Some of us were born to um, ride bicycles away from predators. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you. So, uh, Ben, you're up next. Ben's going to tell us about uh, Robert Caro's working. Yeah. So, when this book came out earlier this year, I was so excited because I've read all the Lyndon Johnson books that he's written, and I've enjoyed them thoroughly, and I read the book immediately when it came out, and I was very excited by this uh, notion of turn every page, which when Caro was a stereotypical um, cub reporter, his stereotypical gruff editor said, when you get into that room with all the documents, be sure to, you may not read everyone, but turn every page, and it was this kind of 
you know, crystallizing advice and et cetera, et cetera. And then I started rereading the book last week, um, preparing for this conversation, and I started to really hate it. Um, I just, I, I felt like this, um, this book is, uh, I don't know if it was Twain or who said it, you know, that if you like sausage and government, don't watch either one being made. And that's kind of how I felt about this book. And I'll read, you know, uh, and the other thing that really just bugged me is the, the kind of privilege that runs through the whole thing. I mean, here's this guy who has spent you know four decades writing about basically one topic and has been given the leeway in his life to do that and so kind of how how applicable is this experience really I mean I, I think I don't think there's another soul on the planet who you know who has experienced it and then this part really just sort of bugged me he was talking about how uh, how hard a time he was having, um, or I guess he'd correct me and say how difficult a time he was having um, writing, uh, get, getting good interviews with the people in the Texas Hill Country where Johnson grew up. And uh, he said, uh, so he writes here, I said to Ina, his wife, um, I'm not understanding these people and therefore I'm not understanding Lyndon Johnson. We're going to have to move to the Hill Country and live there. Ina said, why can't you do a biography of Napoleon? But Ina is always Ina, loyal and true. She said, as she always says, sure, quote unquote. We rented a house on the edge of the hill country where we were to live for most of the next three years. And I just thought, really? I mean, loyal and true? And um, I, I don't know, it just the whole thing just bugged the crap out of me. And, and, and then he goes on to you know, to talk about, um, you know, trying to get a, uh, a good interview with Sam Houston, Lyndon Johnson's brother. Um, and so they go to, um, he, he, he arranges to go to the Johnson boyhood home in Johnson City. And uh, Carol writes, I asked Sam Houston to sit in the same place where he sat, same place he had sat in as a boy. Despite his lameness, because he's quite old, um, he threw a leg over one of the chairs, put his cane down next to it, and pulling over the other leg, sat down next to his father's old chair, as if he were a boy sitting there again. I didn't sit down at the table. I sat down instead be behind Sam Houston in a chair against the wall, and it was sitting there that I opened my notebook. I didn't want anyone at that table who was not one of the Johnsons of Johnson City. And so I, I guess I ended up feeling like this is all so freaking precious. And, <laughs> and, it's, and it's precious about a guy who his biography, you know, his books tell us rigged elections is probably like a war criminal and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And just like, you know, it, it made me wonder why I've been so interested in this guy in, in this biography, I've, I mean, I've read them all. Um, and I guess the answer is that Caro's a pretty good writer. And I've enjoyed reading what he has to say about Johnson. And it was, you know, it's also, um, you know, it's, it's about very interesting times in our history during the civil rights um, stuff and um, during the anti-war stuff and all that. And, and so, 
the books are inherently interesting for the moment in time that they place us in and for Caro's writing. But God, I just, you know, the working just bugged me, just absolutely bugged me. And I, rec I recommend it to no one. <laughs> <laughs> There's another book we all may have heard of with the same title, Working. The Jerkle? Yeah. yeah. So maybe yeah. you could, you know, recommend yeah. that one. <laughs> oh, The Studs yeah, Turkle. That's a great yeah. book. Well, I read Studs Turkle yeah. years ago, you know, yeah. and um, because, again, that was... Yeah, I love that, where his his whole thing was simply to let people talk yep. and to kind of not get in the way as much as possible and get them to whatever the equivalent of the Johnson family dining table in Johnson City is, or you know, and so that they open up. But, but Turkle's subjects didn't need as much coddling, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, they're, they're not, uh, you know, profiles in courage or... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Has anyone read um, um, Janet Malcolm's *The Silent Woman*? Describes the process of biographers. Have, has anyone read that? Mm -mm. I've heard. I've heard about that, and I've been wanting to read it because I read a lot of biographies. It's, so I'm interested in the in the form. Talk about hybrids. Like all of her books are kind of. I mean, to me, they're amazing, and again, they're they're funny, um, but also profound and um, eventually, you know, self-revealing. Thank you. And uh, my book is uh, Nicholas uh, Bucola's uh, The Fire is Upon Us. I w was coming from yoga, which was uh, <laughs> one theme connected to our other <laughs> books, uh, and uh, wandered into a bookstore, and they had the new books table, and I saw uh, Bucola's uh, a book there with the, the image of William F. Buckley and James Baldwin on the cover, and just it stopped me in my tracks and I guess it's sort of connected to this whole 60s and the civil rights movement you're talking about working and, and, and um, uh, your book Daniel uh, uh, about Andy Warhol oh, yeah. and uh, but anyway I, I just uh, had to take a look at it the book is about uh, a debate that William F. Buckley and James Baldwin had in 1965 at the uh, Cambridge uh, that's in Cambridge, uh, England, uh, Union, uh, the Students' Union. So they had a debate between the two of them. Baldwin was on a book tour at that time, and uh, he was at the height of his uh, fame as an author and a public speaker. And uh, William F. Buckley had started the National Review, and he had written his book, uh, God and Man at Yale, and was a leading figure in the uh, conservative movement, and they ended up uh, debating there. And in fact, you can see on YouTube, they have a edited version with most of the debate. So you can just Google uh, William Buckley, James Baldwin, Cambridge Union debate, and it will uh, turn up. And it's incredibly uh, dramatic and, and interesting video if you haven't seen it because it really I think for the probably the first time pits you have an African-American who is really confronting at maybe the center of, of our Anglo white culture in Cambridge the argument against uh, white supremacy 
and uh, for the first time really giving a full-throated argument in this uh, center of the Anglo world. And then maybe also for the first time hearing the conservative response to that. And uh, Buckley formulates that response. So it's just fascinating to see on that level. And then for me personally, when I was an undergraduate in, of all places, the University of Utah in the 70s, uh, Baldwin was there uh, for a week as a visiting writer, and I got to meet him for a short period of time, which was uh, just fascinating. And I also got to see William Buckley. I guess he used to ski in Utah <laughs> on his <laughs> vacations, and he actually came through and gave a talk at the Union Building. And I used to listen to Firing Line all the time. He had really interesting guests on that old uh, PBS show. And uh, the book is great because if you, if you go and look at this video and see this really dramatic confrontation, the book really goes through the threads of how they came up with their arguments, the biography behind them, what led them uh, to meet uh, in this debate. And there's so many threads that uh, we're still dealing with today. Uh, and uh, given our current political and cultural climate. So anyway, I thought it was a very fast read. There are a lot of uh, interesting material in the appendices. Uh, so anyway, uh, I, I love the book. I, I, uh, yeah, that sounds great. So yeah. it's like an annotated version of the debate. Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of... He gives you the background, so you get a little right. bit of Buckley's biography, a little bit of Baldwin's biography, but it's all focused on this debate. And then you get information about the lead up to it, like how did it happen and what was going on. And then they even talk about afterwards, like and sort of the arc of their intellectual and public careers mm -hmm. and how the debate happened and then what happened to them after the debate. Do you so, remember what year the debate was? Yeah, it was in 1965. Uh, oh, okay. So, again, like Baldwin had published uh, Go Tell on the Mound, Giovanni's Room, and Another Country, and of course the amazing essay, long essay, uh, The Fire Next Time. Yeah. So he was really like at his peak. But in, in terms of some um, social context too, in the 63, Medgar Evers was assassinated, 65 Malcolm X assassinated, and 68 Martin Luther King assassinated. That's what I was thinking of too. Yeah. And uh, that, some of the clips of um, James Baldwin, who still seems like 20 years ahead of, of our present day, you know, um, are featured in an incredible movie by Raoul Peck, um, I Am Not Your Negro, which is his finishing of the unfinished um, P 1979 book, Remember This House, that Baldwin was writing. Um, and I was teaching that in a documentary class. I saw those clips over and over and over again, and I could watch them a hundred more times because he is so incredible to listen to and, and to think through. Think mm -hmm. more. It's just, yeah. Had he moved to France by that point? Oh, yes. I, I, he moved, I, I'm pretty sure he moved in the early, 50s, and I think those books, those early books were written there, and then he came back to the United States as the Civil Rights Movement uh, started up. Yeah. 
I remember uh, in that debate, like uh, Buckley making fun of how he how Baldwin speaks. It just it's very it's very um, uh, very 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 Buckley. Just you know these um, uh, just distracting you know ad hominem uh, attacks that I think are meant to just make one feel degraded particularly loaded in the context That's of That's how he debate. shut down that Gore, um, Gore Vidal oh, debate, yeah, oh, but there's yeah. another great documentary yeah. about, yeah. but with, with that sort of ad hominem uh, An actual slur. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I, the, what was one interesting thing about the book was uh, I didn't realize to what extent Buckley had really been an apologist for uh, uh, Jim Crow laws and the Southern establishment. So that was kind of eye-opening for me and a bit of a disappointment because I remembered him from the PBS TV show. He, yeah. he, he's always, I mean, his kind of uh, move throughout his career was to, you know, take a, a you know, completely uh, retrograde position and then apologize for it decades later. So, you know, a, a you know, vicious opponent of any civil rights legislation. Um, uh, he espoused for, um, like during the AIDS crisis, uh, the branding of people who were HIV positive. Ugh. I mean, he's a real, um, you know, kind of, yeah, history uh, hasn't and, and shouldn't look too kindly upon him, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, well, so that was a big surprise for me because I, I did enjoy that show, I must confess. And, you know, and he, uh, what does also come out in the book is that and part of the debate, which are actually the edited parts, is that he was very, uh, very witty and kind of uh, clever on his feet. So he would get questions from the students and then he would have some clever response that would elicit a, a laugh. And so that was part of what I remember from the TV show. So it, 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 it was kind of a, a disappointment to find out about some of his earlier positions. Yeah, if, if, you, if you look at like his kind of uh, you, you know neutral remarks in a vacuum, he seems like a pretty appealing guy. You know, it's like oh, what a what a warm uh, you know funny guy. Dun dun dun. Yeah, and so some of the rhetoric I think from the conservative movement you even see now, where of not taking on arguments directly, but of pulling out uh, you know side issues and focusing on that. Anyway, it's a great read if you're all interested in that. So that's it for today. Uh, Grotto Pod is produced by Susie Gearhart, George Higgins, Ben Marks, Daniel Pierce, and Beth Weingarten. The music is by Sugartown. Grotto Pod is concocted in-house at the Writer's Grotto in San Francisco. Please review and subscribe to Grotto Pod in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, George Higgins, and thanks for listening.